0: Welcome to the No Water Methodist Church Podcast, where we hope to encourage you in your spiritual journey so that you may be a blessing to your local church and to the world. It's the Nowata Methodist Podcast, and I'm Jeffrey Rickman. I'm the pastor here. I'm glad you've chosen to listen to this. If this is your first time, then uh, the bulk of what this podcast does is just uh, plays the recordings of me doing my best to proclaim the Word on any given Sunday. Um, we do some special stuff sometimes, like uh, the interview that we put out last week. I... Uh, I'd like to think we have a good and worthy ministry. We're in a small town that most of the world doesn't know or care about, but the Lord does. And uh, perhaps you're in a place where you're feeling kind of insignificant and why would anybody care about you? But the Lord does. So uh, we choose to care about the Lord, not because we're trying to earn anything, but because we realize that God cared about us first. He loves us first, and so all this love and affection we give to Him is actually returning what He has already given to us. So I hope that's where your heart is as you're listening to to me talk about the most meaningful things today. I was kind of carrying a burden as I preached on this topic this week. I, <laughs> I felt like there's just a lot of intolerance today for people speaking about truth, and so I continue to speak about truth, knowing that a lot of people don't want me to, and um, there is a kind of self-pitying thing that comes in here that I need to rebuke, because um, Christ hasn't called us to lives of (laughs) self-pity. We are victors in Christ, and I I might have lost sight of that once or twice yesterday, Um, so I'm putting it up anyway, uh, despite my own uh, imperfections, because God is good and his word is good and 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is just absolutely essential. It's all essential otherwise it wouldn't be in there. But um anyway, I hope despite my faults and frailties and foibles that you find something worthy in this this humble offering uh if you don't if you don't hear it in how I preach. It's essentially a love song for a God who has loved me more than I could ever return, but it's also seeking to to love you. you know I I think I think we're put on earth to actually do life together, actually know one another and be known by one another. And I think that happens by coming together around truth and meaningful things together. So this is not some guy earning his paycheck. This is me trying to bond with you, and so um, I'm going to encourage you, just like I do pretty much every week, that uh, if you are not tied into an actual body of Christ where you are with people, hugging them, um, shaking their hands, singing alongside them, you really need to be, you know, it, it is not good for man to be alone. Christ built His church so that we might walk in His ways together, and um that's that's really how life is supposed to be lived, so I, I hope as you're meditating upon the resurrection, the bodily resurrection, that your heart is warmed and that you were drawn to Christ's church even more closely than you have been. All right, enjoy. 1 Corinthians 15 begins on page 1787 of your pew Bibles. As always, it's just fine if you look off the screen, but I think a big problem today is that Leaders are trusted too much. I need y'all to keep me honest, so y'all read your own Bibles, make sure what I'm saying reflects what's in there. We've been going through 1 Corinthians for 16 weeks already. We had to take um, two weeks on chapter 7. Maybe that only results in 15 weeks anyway. We're going to have to divide 15 up in half. This is a huge chapter with so much content, there is no way that we can... I mean, if we if we did it all, we'd be here till at least 12, 12 thirty five. So we're not going to do that. Instead, I'm going to, to cover till right below uh, right before he starts talking about mockers and the, the arguments that they're making. This whole chapter deals with the doctrine of the resurrection of the body. I haven't preached explicitly on this for some time. I do every Easter at least. But this is a, a non optional doctrine for all believers. As he's going to say in here, if you don't hold this doctrine, your faith is void and meaningless. So, we're going to talk about the importance of doctrine today. And I want to do this by, uh, I want to begin by reminding some of these themes that we've covered through 1 Corinthians. Namely, he has been showing them that though they think they are advanced and mature, they are actually quite elementary and they are screwing up on uh, very simple things. He is humbling them. He's humbled them several times. He's humbled them over sexual morality and behavior. He's humbled them over how they have the sacrament of communion, how they behave themselves publicly around diet, um, specifically food that is um, dedicated to idols. The larger issues he's dealt with are um, people putting themselves before others being a problem. Remember, he's habitually redirected them to think of what glorifies God and benefits others before themselves that's been in every chapter there's been something there there's also been a concern of um oh i lost it but i'll get it back it's it's all over the place but uh last week he was correcting them slash us remember all of this stuff was written for our edification as well when we gather for corporate worship They were doing it wrong, and in America and throughout the world, we still regularly do it wrong. And so the principle that he introduces is, are you thinking of others and God first, or are you thinking of yourself first? So today, he's going to be really, uh, you know, chapter 15 is is really the last big theological bit. There's a little bit in chapter 16 that we'll cover next week, hopefully. Hopefully, we'll do the second half of 15 and then finish the, the book. But um, for today, uh, we're going to start where we left off. He's reminded us that love is the most important thing, that spiritual gifts are not an indicator of spiritual maturity. They've been full of themselves. He's been humbling them. And now we're going to come to the Scriptures with a humble spirit as well. Amen? Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel. What does gospel mean? Good news. I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, good news, you are saved. If. That's quite a word, isn't it? That, in, that, it in, that indicates, that introduces a conditional clause. That means if the condition is not met, then that first thing is not true. He's saying by this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. Vain, vanity, is meaninglessness. It doesn't count for anything. So, what has clearly happened, remember, Paul planted this church in Corinth. He gave them true doctrine. He gave them the good news of Jesus Christ, part of which is the bodily resurrection. And as it's going to come out, they are abandoning, at least some of them are abandoning, this doctrinal foundation. And he's saying, if you do not hold fast to the gospel I have given you, you are renouncing your salvation. That's, that's the, that is the notion of this if right here. By the, the gospel does save, always and ever, but the gospel doesn't change. And if you do, you are playing with fire. That's the notion here. And in case we don't catch it here, he's going to come back to it in a little bit. Verse 3, for what I received... Here, hold on one second. If he introduces this conditional clause saying you are saved if you hold to it, the inference being if you don't hold to it, you're not saved, how is that supposed to make us feel? Scared? I think I heard scared. Maybe not... I mean, for some, maybe not... I mean, scared, I think... I mean, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I'm never going to tell you not to be scared, you know? But for others... Have you ever been confident about something and it turns out you really shouldn't be? I remember, uh, it's just a silly example. It might be more distracting than it's helpful. But I remember I I was in this group called City Year in in Little Rock, it was a nonprofit institution and half of the the young people with me were black. And they decided it was a good thing for us to get together and talk about racial stereotypes. I don't know why they thought that was a good idea. But the black people said that um, when white people get wet they smell like dogs. You ever heard this before? See, I'd never heard it either. I was like, what are you talking about? Smell like dogs. And they were were laughing at me. And then I got wet in the rain a month later, and I was like, man, it smells like there's a dog around. And I smelled like a dog. (laughs) And all my life, I've been feeling like it was no big deal for me to get wet in the rain. And then ever since then, I've been like, man, I smell like a dog when I get wet. So anyway, if you didn't know, there you go. Um, Anyway, that's a silly example, but that's to say a lot of times we're very confident in things and we really shouldn't be, you know? Uh, uh, America's Got Talent always has somebody who thinks that they're really talented and then they're just terrible, you know? And then that's kind of what he's correcting here is these people think that they're really spiritually mature, and he's saying you're really not, and here let me show you how and why that is. And it's not that he's wanting to just beat them up and make them feel bad about themselves, It's so that they can receive correction and get good at what they want to be good at, you know. So, I mean, this is the dance that I do with each of my kids. Each of my kids, you know, Clementine says that she can read. She doesn't even know her letters. So I have to lovingly say, you can't read, Clementine. Do you want to sit down and work on your alphabet? No, 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 I'll read this right here. And then, you know, we just have to come to it time and again. And that discomfort at being unable to read will finally motivate her to sit down and learn her darn alphabet, you know. And that's how Christians are in our faith. If we have it highlighted time and again that we are not as mature as we should be, then that's an opportunity. Many people don't take it, but that's an opportunity for us to actually grow up in the faith. So that's my job as a pastor, actually, is to continue to lift up the message of the Scriptures and say, how are we measuring up against this? And even be confrontational sometimes. How are you measuring up against this? And if we don't measure up, then the the result is not, oh, I hate that pastor, or oh, I I hate Jesus. It's to go, I hate myself, and I want to do better. Verse 3, for what I've received I passed on to you as of first importance. It's the most important thing. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That He was buried. That He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. You see how important the Scriptures are. And that he appeared to kaphos that's the aramaic name of peter and then to the 12 and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time most of whom are still living though some have fallen asleep then he appeared to james then to all the apostles and last of all he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born so there are people. There are two ways that people like to discount the scriptures. There are actually more than two, but there are going to be two that he addresses that that we need to address as we're covering this. One is um, people are very prone to reject parts of the scriptures by nitpicking. I'm sure nobody here is a nitpicker. But the way nitpicking works is you take something that's constructed and you just start needling at little parts of it until it falls apart. Some people call it deconstruction, but the notion is. You, This one paragraph here has a lot of thought behind it, but if you pick at it, it can fall apart. So like, for instance, some people might look at verse 5 and go, well, actually, at that point of resurrection, it would seem that Judas himself had already died, and they hadn't put Matthias in place necessarily yet, so they weren't 12, they were just 11. And the point here is not to make an art, it's to show that other people will go, the way this is written is not right, so I don't have to trust it. Similarly, if you've read the gospel accounts, you know that some of the very first witnesses were women. And they're not talking about the women here. So a lot of people might go, well, this is not historically accurate. It didn't mention the women. Uh, Paul is a sexist, and I can't trust anything he says. He's obviously against women. That's not the point here. The point is, you know, all these people that he lists off are people in leadership in the early church. He's saying that there were eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ Jesus... And all of the people leading the church are eyewitnesses. The women were not in leadership in the early church. So this is not, let me tell you, all the people that saw Jesus, rather he just runs over it. There were 500 people all at once. It was amazing. He's saying all these people that are t- teaching the same teaching around the bodily resurrection saw the resurrected Jesus in his body. That's the whole point here. So there are two. I said there are two ways that people try and discount scripture one is to needle into it and act like it's incoherent the other is to scoff it scoff at it and mock it and that's what he's going to also address here but it's not hard it is not hard to start problematizing things this is something we see all over the world today it is not hard to open your bible and go well i don't see how that fits with that i'm gonna have to you know that's how cherry picking works if that's how you come to the bible you're not going to believe anything but what you already want to believe but it's not it's also not hard to mock and scoff at things it's the easiest thing in the world you don't have to be clever at all to mock things a child can do it and in fact children are known for doing it because it's childish um, did i just mock children while i was calling them child sorry um, okay so um verse nine for i am the least of the apostles Oh, he was insulting himself, right? He said, last of all, the resurrected Jesus appeared to me as one abnormally born. The notion there being, uh, the, the, the term is a, a baby that doesn't come at the due date, either came too early and is premature, or it does happen sometimes that babies get cooked too long in, in the oven, and when they come out, uh, they've run out of fluid, and it's real, they're nasty. And he's saying, I came out as like a deformed, nasty, too late baby, but I still count. That's the notion here being. So he's, he's dragging himself and being humble. And, also acknowledging, I am the least of the apostles, do not deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. You think he's being too proud? Yet, not I the grace of God that was with me. He comes right back. He acknowledges he's been working all his adult life to glorify God, but even so, he could not do any work at all without God's grace working in him. Anybody else here know that that's the truth in your life? You can do no good thing apart from God's grace. It is Christ working in you. Verse 11, whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach and this is what you believed. He's talking about the doctrine of the bodily resurrection. He's saying all the early church Fathers believe it and are teaching it. All the apostles, all the ones close to Jesus, all the ones who saw his resurrected body, we've been preaching and proclaiming this. This is not an optional part of faith. So I want to zoom out for a second and talk about our culture. Our culture does the same thing that all cultures have done throughout all of history. We try and justify ourselves. And we try and domesticate the gospel, don't we? We try and make it something that doesn't interrupt our lives too much. So there are some outlandish claims made in the Bible that don't comport with our culture, and we have a way of going, oh, 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 that's just metaphor. Oh, oh, we don't don't really have to do that. And that seems quite clearly what's going on here in Corinth, um, as he talks about in the next verse. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So there are people that he has brought into the Christian church, he gave the gospel to, who are now believing against a fundamental doctrine he gave them, namely the resurrection of the body. He's saying, how can you do this? How can you preach this? And for us, we have to figure out why would they do this, and do we do something similar to this? Nowadays, people mostly don't talk about the bodily resurrection because they don't even understand it. They grow up watching Looney Tunes, someone dies, they get a halo and wings, they float up onto a cloud, strum their harp, and that's what we seriously imagine death is like. We do not have a biblical worldview of a bodily resurrection, a day of judgment, all that stuff, it just, you know, Christians read it and they go, that's weird, I don't know what to do with that, and then they move on. It's a problem. Back then, they at least had the decency to take it seriously, but on the front end, People back then, the elite of their time, were the same as the elite of our time. The elite of our time are motivated. You know, everybody in every time thinks that they're the smartest people that ever came along. You know that? And oh boy, we think we're the smartest people that ever came along. In fact, something has entered into common parlance. Trust the science. Trust the science. How do we know what the science is? The experts tell us. Were the experts wrong like five years ago? Yeah, but we don't talk about that. They're right now. We can trust the experts. Christians say, this ain't ever been wrong, never will be. We trust this. Science doesn't have humility. Rather, science is just fine, actually. I'm not against science. I'm against scientists, because they're people. But they think they're machines. They think that they have a hold on the truth over and above this book. The best scientists at all times understand that they can't disprove anything in this book. All they can do is bring, show how this book is true. i got a big problem with elites thinking that they're smarter than anyone who ever came before. That's the nature of elites. That's the nature of elites in Corinth at this time. We know for a fact that ancient Greco-Roman culture did not understand and thought it was silly, thought it was so silly to even talk about dead people coming back to life everybody has always known anyone with half a brain has always known dead things don't come back to life necrosis sets in and you're done you're dead and yet at the very entry point of the christian faith is god becoming man then dying then raising from the dead these are not negotiable parts of the christian faith but they are scandalous To the ancient Greco-Romans. So they're trying to minister to the people of Corinth. The Corinth are scoffing at this notion of dead people coming back to life, a bodily resurrection, so they're backing away from it. And I can imagine these ancient Corinthians saying, look, the culture is not going to receive the good news if we keep talking about a bodily, literal resurrection, okay? We need to back off from that. We need to focus on the other stuff that's not so offensive, and some of them will come with us. And what Paul is writing about is saying, if you have thrown that out, you have thrown the baby out with the bathwater. Your faith is worth nothing. You've just ruined the whole thing. So here we are at this point in history, and there are certain doctrines in the Bible that our culture doesn't like. Doctrines around right relationship with money, doctrines around sexual morality, doctrines about the role of the government, doctrines around pride, humility, all these things, we don't want to listen to it, and so we act as though they are optional. What are we to do? If we take a hard line on these things, people get offended, don't they? I am not in the dark about how many people have taken offense to me over the years. And I'm not happy about it. I hate that I'm just preaching what's in the Bible and people regularly take offense. I don't know why that is. People who've been in pews all their life, all of a sudden, what, this is real? I'm supposed to actually live it? Yeah. One of the vindicating experiences in ministry has been that there have been people that i preached at for years at a time, and one finally comes to me and says, Jeffrey, I finally read my Bible. And you know what? You've just been preaching what's in there. One of the things that, that regularly comes to me from people who are offended is, who says I have to read it exactly the way you do? You don't get to put your thoughts on me. Earnestly, friends, that is the opposite of what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to give you what it actually says if I'm giving you, I mean, I'll give an illustration about my little uh, work session with the black and the white kids. Around. That's, okay, maybe that's not helpful. Maybe I just need to take that stuff out. I'm trying to talk about what God is saying to us here and now. And that's not for you to determine. And that's not for me to determine. God has determined it, and we have to discern it together. It's not me, Moses, up here laying down the law. It's us, the community of faith, discerning it together. Me doing my best throughout the week to understand this and offer it to you but you have to understand it and put it to your work in your life and in the world around you that's what we're doing here and others are going to be offended by it we've been warned haven't we and yet when the time comes that someone is looking at us and we're offended we're going i've done something wrong no you've done something right not all the time <laughs> sometimes we do screw it up sometimes i do say something wrong But most of the time when someone's offended around faith stuff, it's because they have been caused to understand these things have consequences. You can't just take things out and imagine that the gospel still sustains. If it's in here, it's essential, right? If it's in here, it's essential. If it's not in here, it's not essential. But when we start taking things out of here to make the faith more acceptable to people who are not believers or to people who are inside the church but take offense at it, that's when our faith becomes vain. I hope I'm speaking clearly enough here now. I don't like being offensive. I don't, I'm, I, there's not a part of me that's like, oh, I got to make someone mad today. Oh, I just love someone cursing me. No, I mean, that really bothers me. But in the end, I fear God more than man. And that's how we all should be, isn't it? Verse 13, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. It's hard to argue with that isn't it Christ was a man he was also fully God but even so if people do not rise from the dead then you're calling Jesus the whole Christ event a lie verse 14 and if Christ has not been raised our preaching is useless and so is your faith so there's that second reminder you can think you're a Christian you can talk about how much you love Jesus you can sit in a pew and sing and pray if you don't believe none of it means anything Faith is key. Verse 15, more than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. So he's saying, hey, you're you're taking this thing out. It doesn't feel like a big deal to you, but you're calling us liars. You're calling Jesus a liar. You're calling us liars, and you're making a lie out of the entire Christian faith. You cannot do this. Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. He's called it vain. He's called it pointless. He's called it futile, right? And he says, and you're still in your sins. If there is no bodily resurrection, you haven't actually been saved from your sins. You're walking around talking about how you're forgiven. You are still dead in your sins if you don't confess this doctrine. 18. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. Yeah. you know all those people in your church that have died and you've been talking about you know, loving them and following their footsteps? Well, if there is no bodily resurrection, they're dead. they're gone. They're worm food. He's, he's saying, you're disrespecting, not just God, not just me, you're disrespecting the dead who came before you and built this church you're now enjoying. This is this is, whew, <laughs> this is intense. Verse 19, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. I remember preaching on this before here. I know I preached on it before. The the inference here is we are chumps if we're following Jesus and there is no eternal reward. If it's for this life only that we've lived and we practice self-denial every day, we've been persecuted, made fun of, hated, some of us killed, disrespected, We've put others first. You've only got one life and you spend it serving others. You're a chump if there is no resurrection, if there is no eternal reward. You're a sucker. You're a a patsy. What's some other words we have? We got a lot of words for that in our language because we hate being that. And that's what you are if there is no resurrection. But if there's a resurrection, then you are the opposite of that. And everyone else who scoffs at that is most to be pitied because they thought they were so smart but it will be revealed on the last day that they were fools. Here in the meantime, how ought we to live? Faithfully. Duh. You don't you have to have a seminary degree to know this stuff, folks. Verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Remember, falling asleep is a euphemism for dying, not just in Christianity, but around the ancient world. The cool thing with Christians is they took that euphemism and they said, yeah, someday we're going to wake up. It's called the resurrection. Christ was the first fruits. He was raised first, right? In the the ancient Hebrew context, the expectation was that people who were uh, in agrarian society, whenever harvest time came around, those the first fruits, they would take the very best of what their crops had to offer, they would bring it and they would give it to the Lord, not enjoy it themselves. Christ is the first fruits. He was a, a pure, unblemished sacrificial lamb offered for our sins, but he's connected to us. We're connected to him. So the notion is there's a future harvest that we're going to be a part of. Christ is the first fruits. We come second. He he, he builds on this. Verse 21, For since death came through a man, who was that? Adam. The resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. Who's that? Jesus. Yeah, Christ. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Now, this is not preaching universalism. This is assuming that they've had any kind of indoctrination at all. Children, pay attention. Are all people, just as they were lost in Adam, saved through Christ? Not bad. Only those who are elected by God and united to Christ by faith. And that's exactly what you find uniformly throughout the whole New Testament. All are lost through Adam, but only those who are elected by God and united to Christ by faith are saved. And so that's the all that he's talking about, all those who have been elected by God and united to Christ by faith. Verse 23, but each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. So is Jesus coming back, returning? Yeah. The second coming, the parousia, this is throughout the New Testament. Christ has gone away, and it's not that we go up there to join him. Rather, it's that he comes down here to join us, and we reign alongside him after the time of judgment. So he comes, uh, where were we? Verse 23? Yeah. Verse 24, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. If you don't know that, that's terminology from Daniel. The book of Daniel in the Old Testament, Daniel was a prophet in the uh, exile in Babylon. There were three different kings he served under that uh, they were parodies of God's authority, dominion, and power. And that phrase, those three things listed side by side, show that these kings tried to use what only belongs to God. That's what worldly powers and authorities do. They parody what God is. But in chapter 7, the Ancient of Days, God the Father comes and initiates the final judgment and gives authority, dominion, and power to the Son of Man, who then wields it in His name. And of course, the Son of Man is Jesus. So here, he's informed by Daniel as he says, uh, dominion, authority, and power will be given by God the Father. Uh, They will be destroyed and then given to Jesus. Verse 25, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. That phrase, under his feet, conjures up in the ancient world, whenever uh, empires went to war, the defeated king would be brought before the victorious king and made to bow in his presence. And the victorious king would put his feet on the neck of the king he had defeated. Sign of dominance. And it's saying on the last days, God the Father will do that and put all enemies under Jesus' feet. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, right? We know these things. Verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. The inference here is there's not just atheism where you die in your worm food and Christianity where you're resurrected. There's also Gnosticism. Gnosticism is a belief that's found alongside Christianity and in other faiths throughout the world by people who do not believe that this material world can be redeemed. They believe that the only thing that sustains is spiritual. So when we die, there is no resurrection of the body. There's just spirits going around in heaven. And the inference here is, is God powerful enough to defeat death or not? If he can't defeat death, then we're just going to be spirits and death still has the last word. But if God really defeats death, then our bodies can and will be redeemed. You understand how that works? Either death has power or it doesn't. If death has no power, then these bodies can live forever. Amen? That was God's original design in Genesis. And that is what Christ will redeem at the last day. This is a fundamental Christian doctrine. We don't talk enough about it. This is something that's supposed to inform how we live every day, but it doesn't happen if we don't think about it. Verse 27, for he, quote, has put everything under his feet. You'll see there's a little footnote there. That's directly from Psalm eight, verse six. It's also language from Psalm 110, verse one. This is the Old Testament being fulfilled in Christ Jesus. We've been told about the last days, when God the Father will subject everything to Christ's dominion. Now, when it says everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son, that's Jesus, himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Does that make Jesus lesser than God? Actually, no. What Christ modeled in the flesh, what he even models at the end of time, is that it is a holy thing to submit. That's why submission is not a bad thing to ask of people. When you and I, you remember in Ephesians, the household code, be submissive to one another out of reverence for Christ. One of the most Christ-like things that you can do is to submit. Not to me necessarily, but definitely to God. Amen? Verse 29, Now... If there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? What the heck is that? (laughs) This is something uh, my commentators said, this is the hardest verse in the whole book to translate because we have no idea what the baptism for the dead was. There are no context clues. The only context is, what do you think you're doing with this? It's somehow tied up in this doctrine. The Mormons believe that people would vicariously get baptized for people who had already died. That they would say, I know someone didn't confess Christ, but I really want him to be with me in eternity, so I'm going to pretend I'm my Aunt Sarah and get baptized for her. Sorry if you have an Aunt Sarah who didn't love Jesus. But the, the thing is, that, that's something that really hurts us, right? Like, it hurts for us to watch people not choose Jesus and die, because we know what awaits them. So, we in our culture, who are very permissive and want to imagine sneaking people into heaven, we like imagining that there's something we can do where, oh, I got, I know they didn't follow you, Jesus, but I got baptized in their name, so you have to let them in. That's repugnant to the gospel. To imagine that anyone can be saved outside of confessing Christ undoes the whole purpose of the faith. My commentators, and I don't know if I agree with them yet, I read it this morning, said there's no way that Paul, if that's what they were doing, would have just referenced it and let it stand he would have had to correct it their theory was that the greek here is not baptism for the dead but baptism because of the dead the notion being that they had deep respect for those who had come before them in the church who had baptized, been baptized and then died you know how we honor and respect those who have died before us you know how we honor the dead in our community with the bell tree and all saints day and we we talk about them and remember them and honor them Well, he's saying that's what they had back then, too. We have always respected and honored the dead. A lot of people, when they got baptized, were not just thinking of them and Jesus. They were thinking about the faithful dead who'd gone before. And he's saying, why are you getting baptized to be with them if they're just worm food and you're never going to see each other again? What sense does that make? I'm not sure, like I said, that that's exactly what it's meant, but nobody can be sure. My commentator said there were at least 25 other theories about what it could mean. We can't be sure. If one of you finds a time machine, we'll consider going back in time and asking Paul. Let's go on. If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? Here again it would be because of them. And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day, yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let them eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Now you'll see that that's a quote from Isaiah twenty-two thirteen. 13. The context there, Isaiah was prophesying, speaking to people who were surrounded in a city by enemies, and they knew that they were dead meat, so they were saying, instead of repenting to God and praying and building one another up, let's just have a party. Party hardy. We're all going to die. This is something that, that pagans do, that heathens do. This is a certain way of making, if we're all going to die... Let's get drunk. Let's eat and drink, for tomorrow we're dying. And this is not just in Isaiah. This was this was a saying. Uh, there was a, a poet that we know put this in his play. He wasn't even a believer. He, this was before Christ. It's a sentiment found throughout the ages. If I'm gonna die, might as well party. And we all know people like this too, right? That they know they're gonna die someday. They don't have any real belief in eternity. Might as well just YOLO, you only live once. Let's party. That way lies damnation. And he's pointing to the Corinthians and he's saying that's how you're living. If you really don't believe in a resurrection, just go ahead and get drunk and party because you're going to be worm food. Sorry I keep saying the worm food thing. That's kind of crude. Verse 33, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. That was just a, a cliche at the time. That, I mean, that's just been something that all humans have always known. Bad company ruins good character. Do you know this about yourself? that the company you keep impacts you. So we were warned in chapter 5, he said, if you're spending time, well, he said, don't spend time with other believers that are immoral, sinning, and not repenting. Kick them out. Get away from them. You cannot be around them. But he, he was very clear, people outside of the church, you can't hold them to a Christian standard. So here he seems to be circling back around and just saying, look, if the people you're hanging out with are causing you to question your fundamental doctrines of the gospel... You should not be hanging out with them. If you're hanging out with pagans that are making you eat and drink because they have no hope and that's what you got to do to hang out with them, don't do it. Bad company ruins good morals. Now today, the extension of this would be if you're watching TV shows or movies with ungodly people who are not motivated by the gospel, your worldview will be shifted by that. You cannot spend time with unbelievers and think that their lack of faith is not going to affect you. You need to intentionally spend your time, whether it's with people face-to-face or through a screen, with people that are not scoffing at your faith or living like heathens. Where are we? Thank you. Come back to your senses as you ought. The Greek word there actually means closer to sober up, the notion being that they've been drunk. Sober up as you ought. Stop sinning. Have we heard that before? It's almost like it's important. For there are some who are ignorant of God, and I say this to your shame. He's saying there's people inside of the church that actually don't know God, namely those who are denying the bodily resurrection. He's saying you should be ashamed. So I'm going to stop there. Yeah, it's time to stop. We're going to pick up in verse 35 next week, but what I want to lift up to you is I already said it we're not exceptional in this sense but we are in a culture that very much wants us to compromise on fundamental Christian doctrines found in the Bible is uh, upset when we bring it up is incensed when your pastor insists on maintaining a, a high standard I can't well I don't want to bring anything up because I don't want you to think I'm talking about somebody it happens all the time that people take offense and if you're not firm that, this is the way, that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and that the Scriptures point to Him, and that our job is to submit and not bucket, not to come up with our own faith, if you can't be firm in that, then you are going to hit a stumbling block and fall out. You just are. And that's not me wishing bad things for you. That's just saying it's an undeniable thing. There's going to be a hard time coming that you haven't prepared for, and if you haven't prepared for it, you're not going to do well. So the Bible, the Bible was written to prepare us, to equip us, And my hope is not that we all just become a mean, judgmental church, but that whenever people take offense, we're not surprised and that we can speak in love to those who don't want to hear truth. Is that a reasonable thing for a pastor to hope? I would hope so. If anyone has come along, something that you've heard that I've said or done over the years that you thought was unnecessarily harsh or unbiblical, give me a chance to repent. I am not Paul. I have not been sanctified. I make mistakes and I would like to repent for them. But if what I've said is in the Bible and it's been a faithful report and it just hasn't been very considerate of people's feelings, I would submit to you that perhaps it's out of love of others that I present it as strong and starkly as I do. I want to make sure people hear so that they can respond. All right. I think I got I think I covered it. I'm happy. Are you happy? Okay, go home and read your Bible, okay? All right.